have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, there are supposed to be very few ways for states to get into fiscal trouble. Unlike the federal government, they balance their budgets. And they also tend to require voter approval to issue new debt. And this is supposed to prevent state governments from pushing the cost of today's government onto tomorrow's taxpayers. And yet, even with this, a number of states have major debt problems. They accidentally made their own employees their largest creditors by promising pension benefits and not setting aside enough cash to pay for them. One person who's been trying to change this is Leonard Gilroy, vice president of the Reason Foundation and manager of its Pension Integrity Project. Leonard's had success in helping lawmakers to recognize their pension uh, problems, stop states from racking up new pension debts, and to pay down existing liabilities. Len, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. How did states get into pension problems, or how did states get into problems with their pension systems? Well, essentially, what states did, and local governments too, um, pretty universally, is created public retirement systems for their public workers, for government workers, that um, basically rely on a, instead of sort of relying on the contributions that are made by the employer and the employee, which is the way that it works for, for most of us in the private sector these days, in our typical private sector retirement plans. Instead, they basically promised a set amount of benefit that is based not on the amount you put in, but on the salary and the length of time you work and and another couple of other factors. And what that did was essentially created a promise, a a commitment, a constitutionally protected liability um, that that has to be paid um, under our contracts clauses of our federal and state uh, uh, constitutions. And that works fine if you are sort of conservatively investing, conservatively managing these plans and sort of conservatively managing those liabilities. But what we really have had is decades where that has not happened. And the sort of conservative administration, the conservative management, which would allow you to be resilient amid fluctuations in markets like we've seen, um, well, that didn't happen. And so basically as markets started to shift around the turn of the century, Um, towards a lower global interest rate environment, a few other things. Um, The pension plans, the the public pension plans, I should say, did not um, in mass sort of move with the changes in the world. And so what effectively ended up happening and has happened is that over the last couple of decades, um, over approximately about a trillion dollars of unfunded public pension liabilities have emerged as a result of the mismatch between sort of the, the hard commitments and promises that are made to those generations of, of public workers and the obligations to that are required to pay for those benefits. And that mismatch has, has sort of tended to grow. We saw it come down maybe a little bit this year with a, an overwhelming year in the markets, uh, you know, what would be a, a very positive year, but that's coming off the heels of a bad year last year during the emergence of the, uh, the pandemic. And so, you know, I, I think that's what's led to the situation that we're at. And, you know, not, not everyone is the same. Different states are in different positions. Um, each one of these is sort of a unique um, system. And so they need to be treated that way. But if you aggregate it all up, 
Um, we have a trillion dollars of promises made to public workers that we don't have the money for. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting point that we had this great year, um, really that, that should have meant that we fixed a lot of these problems. Uh, you know, we, uh, investments gained covers up the, the liabilities uh, that we have in these pension systems, yet that didn't ha quite happen. I mean, why were these gains not enough to pay down the liabilities that existed? Uh, because the promises, the, the the liabilities were bigger than the gains that were made this year. And so now yeah. we've seen some states, a few states, uh, I saw, I think recently, Idaho, a few other states where this current year of, of 20 plus percent, um, depending on which state you're in, annual returns for this one year. Um, a state like Idaho, is that's going to get them close to fully funded. There's a few states that are in that sort of position, states like Wisconsin, um, South Dakota, Tennessee, a few others have pretty well, they never really fell down into this kind of problem. Um, and so you may see a couple of states that that are able to ride the current market wave to full funding, but that won't be the, the bulk of it. We have uh, at the Pension Integrity Project at Reason Foundation um, done a little bit of sort of forward looking on this. And we project that even after a good year this year, there's still going to be probably um, somewhere in the order of 700 million to a trillion, sorry, 700 billion, excuse me, so I get, get the numbers right, 700 billion to a trillion still left in aggregate unfunded public pension liabilities after a year that will be probably the, I, I don't want to say the best year of our lives or something like that, but you don't get these sorts of annual returns very often, and, and no one expects to have that continue in the future. So basically, maybe the way to put that more succinctly and differently would be to say, if you're in a situation where even a 25% annual return doesn't get you to fully funded, you really need to be um, dealing with the risk in your pension systems. Mm -hmm. Well, so what would you like lawmakers to do about their pension systems? I mean, you talked about they made some decisions to, that underfunded. What, the, what can they do to, uh, to put themselves in a better position? That's a great question. And, and uh, James, the... the the answer is many answers, actually. There's <laughs> several things that tend to go wrong. There's usually never one thing. Um, what we tend to have are basically large, complex financial systems that are kind of you know, difficult to move quickly. And so that means that it took decades for the unfunded liabilities to accumulate and accrue, and it will take time to wind them down. And so basically, but to, I mean, there's a lot of things to happen, but you know, if you really want to simplify it down to three buckets of activity, the first would be um, getting your assumptions correct, your economic, your actuarial, demographic assumptions. Basically, you're trying to do a lot of crystal ball mathematics in, mm -hmm. in these sorts of systems to sort of estimate, if I have a worker coming in at 24 years old today and they're going to retire 40 years from now, um, and they work this whole time, and let's assume that they're gonna, their salary is going to increase by X amount each year. I mean, you have to do a lot of math to figure out how much you mm -hmm. need to start saving today to have the amount of money 40 years from now that that um, worker will start drawing in a retirement check. And so getting all the assumptions right in that, that has been a real problem. There's been a lot of overestimation in terms of investment returns, but it's way more than that. In your state, James, in Michigan, there was uh, during the 2000, sort of mid 2000s into the mid 2010s, you had in Michigan, for instance, you know, a, 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 a loss out-migration of people and you know, losses in the public sector in terms of, mm -hmm. of employment. However, the public pension systems in Michigan were assuming 
that every year their payroll was going to continue to grow at like 4% or something, 3 to 4% a year. And so you had mm -hmm. this, basically all this math that was assuming that more was going to be collected into the system than actually was happening in real life. And unless you get in and dig into those things and, and, and you know, kind of, you know, put the stop on that, you're going to have problems. So assumptions are a big one. Um, another one would be to really look at the, the plan de designs that you're, that you're offering to people. Um, people tend to get stuck in this sort of binary choice of you either have a 1950s style public pension or you have a, a sort of pure 401k type defined contribution plan. And I, I think what, what we've seen out there in, in, in practice and what groups like ours and yours and others have been doing is sort of trying to open up policymakers' minds to a universe of, of, of maybe design options within those constructs or others um, that could offer maybe more risk, um, less risky, more sustainable financially sorts of retirement plans. And so getting plan design right, and that could be a lot of things. You know, in Michigan, um, Michigan was a pioneer back in the late 90s of introducing the 401k defined contribution plan to basically most state workers um, outside of public schools. Um, and, you know, they've iterated on that over the years and turned what, you know, basically had probably was a flawed plan at the beginning into something pretty, pretty solid, I think is a world-class, you know, representative model now. You've got the teacher plan now in Michigan that offers choices. Um, where you can choose, you basically kind of default into one kind of plan, but you can choose a pension, you know, if, if you want, but that was designed to be less risky. Um, the state of Texas this year, we, we, we worked there um, with, uh, you know, a number of stakeholders and elected officials to, to work on a major um, pension reform uh, for their state employee plan in Texas that involved basically introducing a cash balance plan, which is sort of an alternative type of retirement plan. Um, that is, again, less risky for taxpayers and doesn't generate those kind of unfunded liabilities. So really, there's there's not just, it's not Coke versus Pepsi or vanilla and chocolate. There's a universe of options out there. And even within a, like a pension construct, you can play with that and, and pull lots of levers to, um, to make outcomes better for both workers and taxpayers. And I guess the last one, just real quick, you have these unfunded liabilities. They are constitutional promises that as you know, James, and but I don't know if many of your listeners know, are actually constitutionally protected benefits. So even if a governmental entity, you know, ran out of money and said, well, we, you know, we can't, like the state can't, you know, the, one of the state pension systems runs out of money, there is still in the courts, there will be a recourse for that, those individuals mm -hmm. to go to the state budget and get that money somehow, some way or another, because it is a constitutional promise. And so those are real obligations. Even if the way to put it is if you switch to a new, you know, totally risk-free um, retirement plan tomorrow, you still have all of those unfunded liabilities that are on, that were on your books yesterday. They're still there. And so you have to manage that liability. You have to manage um, that and, and basically what we tend to say is pay that down as fast as humanly possible because like in, in that I understand that that involves lots of trade-offs it's budget trade-offs it's lots of choices of do we invest in the now or do we invest in the future um, or in the past which is effectively what a pension obligation is is investing in the department of the past but effectively that obligation has got to be paid like any other debt like mm -hmm. you went out and did a general obligation bond or something like that. So like your credit card or mortgage or your general obligation bond debt as a state or any other debt, 
the faster you pay it off, the less interest you pay and the less burden or overall um, that will be required from the, from, from the taxpayer fisc. So those would be the, basically the big three parts and there's lots of complexity mm -hmm. underneath, but hopefully that gave you a, a sense of the scope. Yeah, but it also to me raises the issue of why this is such a hard issue for lawmakers uh, to deal with because yeah. you've got um, changing assumptions, you've got changing benefits and you've got just putting more cash in, in, into these programs. And so, like you mentioned that uh, we have this payroll growth assumption in Michigan, it was three and a half percent. When we raised that, hey, you know, you haven't gotten this for the past 20 years. Like it's been a bad assumption. You should change it. The response was, but if we change it, we have to put in more money into this system and we don't want to do that. So like, how do you address some of those, uh, that political consequence, given that there just uh, don't seem to be any easy options available to lawmakers? That's a great question. I think you sort of answered your own question, James, but I mean, just to kind of expand on it a little bit, you flagged exactly the, the correct um, dynamic, which is if you're talking to a legislator, you know, a public official who is maybe motivated by the pension um, um, underfunding challenge, you know, you can get a lot of heads nodding in the room as you're talking about the challenge. And then when it gets to the, the part about, all right, how do we fix it? And, you know, the, one of the things I tend to say is we didn't get into this underfunding boat overnight. And the only way you can't get out of underfunding by putting mm -hmm. the same or less money into your system, you actually have to put in more. And, and I think that for, for some, you know, especially on the center, right. I mean, I think there's this, uh, you know, they may have a, a certain visceral distaste for the idea of budgeting, appropriating more money to what they see as sort of a, a major financial problem. I, I totally understand that. It is, it is a rational, you know, kind of perspective. I think what that perspective may be, may be missing, and, and what um, the Pension Integrity Project, I know you're, you, you guys at Mackinac and others around the country do, is we try to, to tell people that there are consequences that are right beyond what they're kind of seeing um, with the maybe the emotional you know, first reaction. And that is basically this, is that like any debt, you're going to pay interest on that debt. And pension debt is basically the most expensive interest that I've ever seen at the state or local level. I mean, I, James, you, 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 I'll ask you maybe in your own podcast, have you seen you know, debt at the state and local level that basically is at a 7% plus you know, borrowing rate? Um, because that is, effectively, that is effectively what's happening with a pension system. Your unfunded liabilities as a pension system are growing at the assumed rate of return of that pension system, which typically is about 7% or, or even more in a lot of places. Now, Michigan is actually starting to go a little bit lower down into the low, to high sixes, but those are still really high rates. And so, you know, that's a, that's, you're chasing a crazy interest rate on that debt. And I don't think a lot of politicians understand that. Um, well, and so trying I mean, to convey that, I think is really important. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, there's a reason they don't understand it because it doesn't seem uh, credible or doesn't seem like pensions should have an interest rate. Like, right. you know, we promise these benefits, they're going to be the same, but it's really this function of the actuarial assumptions that go behind it that generates the kind of interest, which means that if we put money into the pension system today, you can save a lot over time. Right. You know, the, I mean, pensions are really complicated. When you look at actuarial models and that sort of thing, it's 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 mind-numbingly dense. 
And I think policymakers really want to have a simple system to deal with. And so it makes it effectively, they, they are able to be comfortable and hide effectively behind things like assumptions where they say, well, the experts say, or the experts suggested that we use this discount rate, or the experts suggested this should be our payroll, payroll growth rate or, or what have you. And it, the, the current construct allows for a lot of sort of hands-off decision-making saying, well, you know, it's a, it's a complicated thing. Let's let the experts handle it. And that is, an, to me, an abdication of the policy responsibility. Policymakers are elected to make tough decisions. Sometimes they build complicated systems and, you know, you got to manage it. I mean, if you build it, you have to manage it. And so, you know, I, what, what we've tried to, you know, the Pension Integrity Project tried to do is really lean into that education about what you're really doing here and trying to lean into the education to say, policymakers, no. In fact, you should grab as much control as you can away from the autopilot nature of this. If you want to set the discount rate, you should set it. Don't let the actuary set it. Don't let the plan set it. You should set it because the policymakers control the risk. That is bottom line. It's not some entity out there in Michigan. It's not the Office of Retirement Services or, or different pension plans that they administer. It's the law. The pension plans are written in the law. Policymakers can change that law or, or affect it. And they wrote it. It's, their, it's their, their responsibility to manage. So we would say put in as much control as you want to, you know, to have an effective retirement system that you've constrained within a tight box that operates from a um, – financial sustainability perspective. Because if you don't, it's going to mean that you're you're constantly grabbing from the future to give back to the past. And it means for the workers, it, it means that you are not able to even invest in them. I mean, you're basically chasing, you're spending more money on the department of the past than you are in investing in you know that workforce or and that sort of thing. So I think explaining the trade-offs is really important. And then just showing the cost savings. I'll give you a quick example. In Arizona, where I live this year, um, Governor Ducey and the Arizona legislature signed a budget that included a major tax and debt relief component. It had a billion dollars of tax cut, a billion dollars of general obligation debt reduction, and a billion dollars of pension debt reduction. And we did some of the modeling um, to kind of look at the numbers on that. And what we found is that in this particular one particular public safety system that we were talking about and put the billion dollars into, um, Putting a billion dollars in now is going to save taxpayers 1.4 to 1.6 billion over the next 30 years in net. So that means like putting in a little more now literally saves you big money in that avoided interest downstream. It's like paying off your credit card early or something like that, James. But I mean, I think when you can convey um, the numbers and sort of the dynamic in a way like that to policymakers, it, it can not always, but it can help them get over maybe their emotional reaction to putting more money into what they think is a, you know, sort of a, a black box. So you've got, you've recognized a big problem in the country. You've got your solutions. How do you get lawmakers to care? And what exactly are you doing to get what you want? Whew, how do you get policymakers to care? I think it's a, it's a, that is something that is unique to every jurisdiction and every state. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for instance, in your state, I think there, I, you know, there was a wide recognition, thanks to Mackinac's great work for decades. I mean, literally, Mackinac goes back to the beginning of the um, um, defined contribution 401k work that you know I was talking about earlier in Michigan. Um, you know, the the dynamic in Michigan was one, for instance, where 
unfunded liabilities were just racking up. You you had you know a lot of um, sort of economic problems that had been going on for a long sustained period. You had a decade where basically Michigan really wasn't making sufficient pension. They weren't even making what the actual they weren't putting in the money that the actuaries were saying was the bare minimum needed each year. And so you had really chronic kind of problems that um, took, you know, a political majority, I think, to come in and, and try to tackle. Um, and that one, you know, that one was different than, you know, in Texas, for instance, where you had the public employees union was one that in the, in the, in the Texas um, um, employee retirement system, Texas ERS, both the employees and the pension systems were out, have been out there for years, kind of telling policymakers, our system has a problem. You need to fix it. Basically, the plan was telling legislators, if things go well, we're going to run out of money in 2060. If things go really bad, we're going to run out of money in 2040. So, which how, do you, you know, what do you want to do? And so that, that period is a long way away. away. <laughs> Maybe there's time to fix it, right? Um, and so those are two different examples. And, and, and you know, the, where we, I think, at the Pension Integrity Project had our first real success um, was here in Arizona with our public safety, police and fire um, uh, personnel, where the legislators basically put us and them in a room together and said, the, the unions are saying they're seeing, you know, real problems coming in the pension systems. And, you know, Pension Integrity Project, can you guys go and look at this, validate it, figure out what's going on. And we looked and saw the exact same dynamic, which was a pension system quickly running out of money, veering towards insolvency. They had identified you know, the main structural problems. We were able to validate that. And together, um, over about nine months, um, we, the, my group and, and the police and fire unions here collaborated on coming up with a pretty robust plan on how to introduce a new plan with choices so all new police and fire statewide have had a choice plan, either a pension or a defined contribution plan, both good, well-risk-managed plans um, for five years now, I think four, four or five years now. Um, also put in um, governance changes to improve the way the administration was working of the system, put into place um, methods to improve the amortization policy, which is how do you pay off your debt faster, which I was mm -hmm. talking about a minute ago. And so built in some of that. And then for the last few years since, have, there's been a collaborative, all of that was bipartisan. And there's been a collaborative spirit here in Arizona for really five straight years of incremental then improvements on this. And James, what we find, and same thing has happened in Michigan too, um, where if you can get over those first emer emotional hurdles where people think you know, the employees might think you're trying to take something away, and, th and that's not what anyone's trying to do. We're trying to build is uh, systems that work for everyone. And if you, you know, and, and you also have to deal with the elected officials who maybe have different worldviews on pensions versus other types of plans. And if you can get everybody in the room and kind of force them to get over the first hurdle, what we tend to find is that then reform can stick because then you've got a process going and then it keeps happening. So, as you've seen in Michigan, the Michigan um, MIPSERS teacher plan. Um, had a major reform in 2018 or 17, sorry, 2017. But then every year since then has had sort of incremental improvements and, and things like that that have happened either in, in law or, you know, kind of at the board level or, or something like that. And so what we, it's hard and you have to get over people's emotional baggage, frankly, about retirement systems, which is built on a lot of misinformation. But once you can do that and show data and earn trust, you can have you know really meaningful conversations. You just have to get 
through that first step and sort of take the heat out of the room. How do you figure out where to engage? It's a I, for, for at least a pension integrity project, there's sort of maybe three ways. Some are just direct requests where a legislator might hear that, oh, hey, you, there was a success over in you know, Arizona or New Mexico or Colorado or what have you, and oh, you guys are involved, let's talk. It's a little bit of that. Um, some, some places we can see a problem kind of emerging or there's a, there's a situation you know, that's, that's sort of laid out on the ground by itself on its own which would be like that Arizona situation I mentioned, you know, where basically the unions were kind of telling legislators for over a year, we think we have a problem and you need to fix it. And mm -hmm. it took a little while to get there, but, you know, then we sort of got involved in an effort that was, you know, emerging. <clears throat> and then I guess the, the last would be um, trying to look at those places where you really see a crisis point. Um, this would be places like, you know, New Jersey, um, Connecticut, Illinois, you know, some of these states that are really, you know, hurting in a bad way, where you have pension systems that are less than 50% funded, meaning they have less than 50 cents on the dollar for, you know, what they what they will need to have in 30 years to, to pay off um, their obligations. And so you some of those you, you know, you can sort of proactively um, engage, you know, at a thought level. And so we try to, you know, do thought leadership in those kinds of states and at least point to what other people are doing to try to suggest that there is a way out. So I think those are maybe some different ways that, that we engage. How optimistic are you about those states that are in a worse positions, your Connecticut's, New Jersey's, and Illinois's? Those are going to be tough situations. Um, you know, uh, Illinois, you know, Illinois is sort of a classic case. I mean, you have five state level pension systems and then many, 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 local pension systems that are massively underfunded. Um, the taxes in Chicago, for instance, I think Chicago, that city has raised, at last count that I recall, four different taxes on people, cell phones, water, different utilities, to just throw money at the pension problem without really having all the structural changes underneath it to keep um, that, that solid. And so it, it might even be a good money after bad situation because they haven't fixed those systems. And those are going to be real challenges that, um, you know, may, I mean, downstream, just depending on how markets go and, and all of that, you could see, you know, dis municipal distress and, and that sort of thing as Michigan cities have experienced a lot. And there's been a lot of policy action around, as, as you well know, in the last several years to, to require cities to report um, really more, more honestly how their um, underfunded pensions and, and other retiree benefits are, are going. Um, there, there might be those stress situations or even things that verge towards bankruptcy. At a state level, you can't really do that. So what it, I think what it means at a state level is until the Illinois and the New Jerseys and the, the Connecticut's, et cetera, Kentuckys, um, really fully fix the structural mechanisms that led to the underfunding in the first place, that's step one. Finding the money to be able to pay for all of that is a challenge that they're going to have to, to navigate. How that happens, I'm not sure. Uh, but what it tends to mean is they're going to have pressure for more and more taxes, absolutely. And they're going to have pressure for increased what we call crowd out, meaning stealing from the current services to effectively pay for the past. And that means that you know it's an intergenerational equity problem um, where 
the citizens of today are going to be forced increasingly to um, to to redirect the money that they're basically thinking they're putting into public safety, public works, into roads and potholes and that sort of thing. And that money is going to go out the door to pay for pension benefits. And there, those public current public services will see a diminished quality, and that will have community-wide effects in some places or even statewide effects in, in other places. It seems that uh, once lawmakers say, uh, get into the mindset that they're going to take this thing seriously, they're going to fix the problems, you've got a lot of good options. You can hold their hands to, 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 to point them in that direction to accomplish those goals. Um, how do you get them to that point, though? Because that seems to be the biggest factor that's going to determine your success in the future is you got to care about this. You, you can't you have to care about 2040 and 2060. It's hard. I mean, you know, that's a really difficult thing. And if, if I if I wish there was a secret sauce because we could really change the world if that if that was the case. Um, but, you know, I think what what I what I've found and observed is that. The, the legislators, the policymakers who tend to take this issue on tend to be the more seasoned, not always, but tend to be the more, either the more seasoned folks or the ones who are so financially literate that it's obvious what's happening. You, you know some in your state that are like that. You know, we could talk about them. But um, those individuals, what I have tended to find among their oh, peers, let me do that real quick. Thank you, uh, Representatives Albert and uh, and uh, Senator Pavlov. <laughs> Rep. Among Albert others, is a among great. Ex oh, absolutely. I mean, there's really you have some really knowledgeable folks there. Rep. Albert, you know, is a great example. Um, that's an individual who has spent who spent before coming into a public office, as I understand it, he had spent years in in the world of finance and actually in as an investor, you know, in the state's treasury and understands this issue in a way that most normal people could never even process. And so people like that, and, and, and what we tend to find are those types of individuals are out there in every state. They tend to have been the folks that have maybe been around for a while, have been on appropriations or Senate finance or something like that committee. They are those who tend to watch this stuff for a while and get the long-term math of it. Um, and I think what I have found is that if you can if you can build sort of that understanding and motivation, really problem motivation, um, selling the problem and getting people to understand it, and can have effective spokespeople like these individuals I'm talking about, you know, sort of the the thought leaders among the the electeds. Um, that's how you can start to pull people in because legislators they don't trust you or I more than they trust their seatmate, right? They don't trust you or I out there in the, in the think tank world more than they trust, you know, the people that are their peers living the policy world and, and that decision-making experience with them. And so kind of building in mass that problem motivation and channeling with those folks, you know, making sure that the, the people who understand the issue are well empowered to communicate it. I think that's what where that's where we've tended to find success and it doesn't mean success it, you know that that can we've had just as many failures as successes or just as many failures to launch I guess because you just didn't quite get the spark. But you know it's sort of like lighting a pilot light, you know if you if you have enough, you know sort of fuel in the air and you just get that spark with the right people, you can light the pilot light and then, you know, kind of create sustained energy. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's 
interesting and a cause for optimism because despite the politics on this being so terrible, which is, look, if you fix this problem, you got to put in more cash. Uh, the benefits come decades later. You're probably not going to be around to enjoy them. Even despite that, you still have lawmakers around the country making good reforms on this issue. And that doesn't happen, uh, that, that doesn't happen by itself. I think it requires some good people. It requires creating a climate of popular opinion and an expectation that you're going to do something or that lawmakers need to do something about this. And if you get those things lined up, you can make some important uh, reforms and to avoid some major problems in the future. Absolutely. And I think another ingredient to that is, is that once you take the heat out of the sort of emotional and political heat out of the room and you're just talking systems and technical things and numbers, that gets really way less intense. I mean, actually, the policy itself is not something to be feared, I, I guess is the way to put it. People tend to think, oh, well, if I touch – like they politicians I, – I love the initial reaction that we get when we're talking to them because some of them think that just – talking about pensions is sticking a finger in the light socket and that they're going to just get electrocuted and get zapped out of office and you know gone forever and that's not to say that that can't happen in some places if you don't manage it right but basically if you walk in and you say look we have a we have a problem everybody should agree we we've got all these promises that we made that we just don't have the money for if we're going to pay for that it's going to take this and that is going to require this amount of investment in trade-off. Can we all agree that that's a thing we're going to have to deal with? And you start getting everyone around the room nodding their head. Then the technical part of that becomes pretty easy. It's a matter of saying, well, what are you looking for? What are you after? What are you trying to achieve? And then using, there's a lot of creativity here. There, these are not, you know, this is not some um, situation in which you got to take a lot of bad medicine. The bad medicine is basically just paying down your unfunded from the past. That's just money. The systems and the rest of that stuff itself is not that – I mean it's complicated, but it is not that – I guess I would say it is easy to create um, reform concepts and packages that crosswalk lots of varied interests from lots of stakeholders. All you need to know is what people are interested in, and then you can build the system that achieves that. And that is not scary. In fact, that's kind of empowering, I think. And in fact, that's very, I, I think that's a creative – space that policymakers should be running to. Um, and, and I think when you can take demystify it, take all of that complexity and, and this fear that it's just a bludgeon and pension reform is some bad thing with bad outcomes, that's not the reality. You know? and, if you, and, and there's enough examples to show that. Um, in Arizona, my, my organization has worked on fixing, you know, repairing three of the four state level plans. There's just one you know, kind of left. Um, we've worked in Colorado, big bipartisan state, big, you know, bipartisan reforms where everybody was at the table coming up with you know, a big package of creative things that nobody else had done before. New Mexico, um, last year, we worked with in a very blue progressive state, um, it, working again with unions and having a left-right sort of collaboration that of, of the coalition of the, the smart and willing who could figure this out and that were willing to tackle this. And, and you know, Texas, that's another example, Michigan. You start to look out there, and you've got tons of really good examples of that are all very different. That all show that you can really fine tune, customize, and you don't. Michigan doesn't have to adopt the Wyoming or the Texas plan. Michigan can have the Michigan plan, 
and Michigan can have the, the plan that is right for, for Michigan. Texas can have their plan and everybody can be a little bit different because no one walked into the same situation overnight and all these systems are different. So, you know, treat it like that, demystify it, and you can get good outcomes. Len, uh, thank you for helping us understand what's within the Overton window. Thank you, James. I really appreciate it. And thanks for all the great work that you do in, uh, in Michigan. Really appreciate Mackinac. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about The Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.